Leti Chiwara holds the title of UN Women Representative to Ethiopia. It's a pretty broad title and could mean a lot of things. But in reality, Chiwara spends lots of time helping others get better data on the lives of Ethiopian women. She and her team were interested in specifically the challenges that these women face with things like making a living, having access to health care, and just general quality of life as compared to their male counterparts. And after crunching the numbers, they found some shocking results. We found that uh, more than 60% of women in Ethiopia perception of violence against women was that it is okay for a man to beat up their wife. And that was quite startling. When you hear a number like that, you know something is terribly off in Ethiopian society. And fixing it is going to take a multi-pronged approach that'll require buy-in from all parts of society. But the first step in doing anything is convincing everyone that the problem exists, that it's widespread throughout the country, and that it's an impediment to the overall economic health of the entire country. In other words, you need to convince those in power that it's in their best interest to change the status quo. And that's what we're going to look at on today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a series from Foreign Policy that examines how women are striving to overcome difficult and sometimes dire circumstances to forge new paths toward economic independence. I'm Rena Ninen. So when we use the phrase remarkable women, Leti Chiwara definitely fits the bill. In addition to being the UN Women Representative to Ethiopia, she's also the current UN Women Representative to the African Union Commission and the UN Economic Commission for Africa. And before her work in Ethiopia, she was the UN Women Chief of Africa based in New York, where she worked for 12 years. When she was there, she was very involved with improving gender data. So when she got to Ethiopia in 2013, she made gender data a priority. She approached the Central Statistical Agency of Ethiopia, which oversees efforts like the census. They were collecting information divided by gender, like male and female. But Letty didn't think that was enough, just putting the raw data out there in these lengthy charts. Letty also encouraged them to write about the gender differences, make sense of the numbers. She wanted them to dive into the biggest trends and gaps. I'll let Leti Chihuahua take it from here. We were able to convince the Central Statistical Agency that it is critical for Ethiopia to produce a gender statistics report, which was, of course, produced in 2017. With that report, we were now able to look at each of the sectors of the country, agriculture, tourism, manufacturing, and look at these sectors. Where are the women? What are their contributions? What are some of the gaps or challenges that they face? And therefore, how can those challenges be addressed? So that statistical report became a very key document to analyze their work and to come up with policies and programs that responded to women's needs. Tell me about how you got Ethiopia to start what's called a time use survey. And for the listeners who don't know exactly what a time use survey is, what is it? Why is it important for capturing women's economic contributions? This really was to capture in a day what does a woman do from the time she wakes up to the time she goes to bed. That is what is called time use survey. And when you analyze that data, it's a huge process. You come up with 
statistics or information that will let you understand that even if the woman didn't go to work or didn't bring income in terms of salary to the house, they filled a gap that could have required the, the family to pay somebody to do that work. So therefore, they've contributed that same amount of salary. That's where you begin to put a dollar value to the time a woman spends taking care of the family. You also helped Ethiopia begin collecting data on violence against women and girls. How did you get that started? In 2016, as we're doing the time use survey, issues of uh, violence against women and girls were coming up. We realized it was important that we begin this process of collecting data on violence against women and girls. But of course, we couldn't do it as UN women. So once again, we went back to the Central Statistical Agency because they were about to get into the fourth demographic health survey for Ethiopia. So what we did was we convinced them to include in that demographic health survey a separate module on violence against women and girls. Once that data was collected, we actually began to shed some light onto the extent of violence against women in the country. Globally, it said one in every three women, which is about 30% of women, experience violence in their lifetime. And I think that global statistics is true even for Ethiopia. One of the things that I have learned is sometimes statistics around violence against women can be deceiving. It can be deceiving because this issue of reporting. To what extent do women actually feel confident enough to go and report um, violation of their rights in that regard? And in many instances, they don't report. So the statistics on violence against women is very difficult. How were you able to drive and create policy to make a tangible difference? We've really focused on uh, prevention in terms of looking at what are some of those preventive measures and programs or actions that can be used across Ethiopia to prevent violence against women. For example, we have a community-based program where community leaders, religious leaders, and other community leaders come together and talk about the issues of violence and therefore come up with solutions at community level to address it. Perception is a hard thing to change because it takes time to change a person's perception. But you can do that through using various methods, particularly the change makers, the community leaders as one, but also religious leaders. I mean, Ethiopia is a very religious country and I think many other countries are. Once you, you work with religious leaders, and once the religious leaders go to their people and talk about these issues, you begin to see perceptions changing. We see communities where it's now punishable within their own community. So then people don't do it anymore. So do you feel that taking the data you've received to the religious communities has really made a difference in, in changing attitudes and stopping violence against women? Definitely. Because even to go to the religious leaders to convince them, you can only do so if you have data. So you need to go there with evidence. If you have to change policy, 
if you have to change perception, if you have to change action, you need evidence and evidence comes from data. What are some of the biggest trends, biggest surprises you've seen as you've collected this data? I think the biggest issue that came out from this data is the level of education for women. We found out that more than 60% of Ethiopian women could not read or write, and that really was startling. We found out that in the main sectors that drive the economy, which is agriculture, for example, that less than 10% of women owned the land that they were farming. They are the, the main contributors to agriculture. The statistics told us that more than 70% of women are involved in agriculture, but only 10% own the land that they farm. So that all those statistics were quite startling. Leti, when you get those statistics on agriculture, how does that help the women on the ground who are trying to be entrepreneurs and grow these businesses? Well, once we get those statistics, we start to engage with the key sectors. For example, with the agriculture. That statistics actually helped us to do further analysis and study of the agriculture sector with working now closely with the Ministry of Agriculture and in the context of our work on uh, women's economic empowerment, ensuring that there are provisions given to allow women, even if they are female-headed households, to be able to own the land that they till every day. So based on all these numbers you've been able to accumulate and gather, how have you been able to drive and create policy? Well, as UN Women, we produce what we call policy briefs. And those policy recommendations are targeted at various actors. So once we do those policy briefs, we then begin to have policy dialogues with different sectors. And of course, we push for these policymakers to now go back and infuse these into their policies moving forward. But what is so key is accountability. So one of the things we've done in Ethiopia is um, to develop a gender accountability tool. At the end of the year, every sector is analyzed in terms of how much their policies were gender responsive, and then they are given a rate, how much their programs were gender responsive, how much their budget allocations were gender responsive. Once that is done, then it is presented to the highest levels of government for accountability. I remember when we did this um, exercise two or three years before COVID, there was an outcry from some sectors to say, no, 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 but we did well, but we did, you know, you didn't capture this properly, we did well. So I think that's, that sense of competition, accountability, helps for each sector to now step up their game and begin to do something so that next time around, when this exercise is done, they are not seen to be on the lower ranks, but to also do as well as others. Daddy, what advice do you have for countries who have never collected gender data but want to start? One of the challenges for those that want to do this work is people will tell you what difference will this make to women? Will this bring bread and butter on the table of the women? You will get those questions. But you know what? It, it does matter. It might not bring bread and butter today, but in the long run, it does. For me, having gender data 
is a long-term game changer for achieving gender equality. Because once it's institutionalized and once it's part and parcel of the whole system of government, you know that women will never be left behind and they will be part of the process of the whole cycle of the development of an economy and a country. Leti Chiwara with the UN. Leti, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you. Leti's point is an important one to re-emphasize because gathering statistical analysis is vital to seeing the big picture, the broad trends, and pointing a path forward to solving systemic issues. But it can also have the effect of depersonalizing the lives behind the numbers the real struggles faced, and also the trauma endured when it comes to things like gender discrimination or domestic violence. And the bigger the numbers, the harder it can be sometimes to make visible the individuals who make up these statistics. This is something our next guest, Emily Corey Pryor, is constantly thinking about. Like Letty, she's involved in collecting data as the executive director of the nonprofit Data2x. Her organization partners with groups like UN Women, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and individual countries. Data2x's offices are right around the corner from the White House, and crazy enough, it happens to be in the same exact building as foreign policy, just one floor up. But despite this close proximity to us, we did catch up with Emily in our fancy state-of-the-art soundproof podcast studio. That space has largely been vacant since the pandemic began. Instead, we did what so many others have been doing this past year and a half, and connected over video chat. And quickly, I found out that like many of the women she studies, Emily is trying her best to also succeed in another full-time job, being a mom. What are some of the challenges and the opportunities when you're collecting gender-based data in areas like Africa, like Asia, Europe? Mommy. I, I can't, I Mom, can't, but. I, I promise I'll choose John. Okay, I, I, I can't right now. I need, I need a few minutes, okay? Okay. I'm sorry. No, why do we apologize for that? It actually brings me such comfort as a woman who's traveled to war zones. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how comforting it is to hear a woman talking to their child and us to normalize that. Well, thank you. You know, it's just... I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. I'm like, where's my husband? Where is he? <laughs> There's also that. That's a different podcast. <laughs> We should just we should just title it. Where is my where is my husband or where is my partner? You know, where is the other person? (laughs) But this goes to the crux of every culture, every country, what women are struggling with at this moment, Emily, that you're trying to bring forward through numbers is this balance of the home and work. Yes. So going back yeah. to the question. <laughs> I totally missed I the question. To <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. You know, when you talk about the opportunities and the challenges in, in collecting and analyzing data based on gender by region, what about areas like Africa, Asia, Europe? What are you seeing? What do you find are the opportunities and the challenges when you're looking in these countries? I think in terms of the the challenges there, a lot of times it is just limited funding for national statistical offices from the get-go and therefore limited capacity that gender statisticians have for collecting and analyzing that data. And it's really important because, you know, oftentimes the gender statistician in a country is 
one person, often with multiple responsibilities for other types of data, right? They're the least funded, they get the least attention, and yet at the same time, our entire world, everything we do is driven by data. And I actually think there's an uptick of interest in data. And I think that we need to capitalize on that, frankly, for gender and for gender data and better support the people who are doing the work. And so I look at that as absolutely a challenge within Africa and Asia and Latin America, but I also look at it as a tremendous opportunity. What do you say to people who push back on this idea that there's this gender bias in data? Can you show tangible ways where you see that in how policy is formed? Yes. You have some set of people who are not convinced that it's a problem in the first place. And then you have another set of people who do believe that there is an issue, but both of them kind of go to the same concluding question, which is, well, so what? What changes in the world if you have more data? And uh, so that's really, I think, the importance of examples, the importance of case studies, the importance of, okay, what policies have changed because of having this kind of data. So first, we do have some examples, and one of them is actually comes from Vietnam. And it was a a nationwide survey by Vietnam Statistics Office. And their office found that 58% of women reported experiencing physical, sexual, or emotional abuse by their husbands. And 87% of those women who had experienced this type of violence and abuse had not sought any form of help. And this data actually caused a very public conversation and a reckoning about the nature of violence against women. And it raised awareness around new coping strategies and available or unavailable support services. And it directly informed new government strategies and policy responses addressing violence against women. You've done a lot of work on making workforce participation questions better that reflect women's economic lives. For so long, women have been forgotten. Can you sort of explain a little bit about how you had certain questions rephrased to sort of better capture women's economic participation? Sure, absolutely. There's actually something called the International Conference of Labor Statisticians, which is convened by the ILO, the International Labor Organization. And it's a really important group. It gets together every five years and it represents every country, right? So this is where labor statisticians come together to make sure that everyone is measuring things similarly. So when we're doing cross-country comparisons and we're trying to understand the global economy and things like this, that, that we can do that with some level of confidence in terms of the way that things are measured. And one of the things that came out was that women were just being missed in the way that we collected data on economies and on economic contributions. And the reason that women were being missed is that their economic contributions are more varied than men's. So where a man might have, you know, might be able to answer a question and say, oh, I have this one occupation, right? I'm a welder or an electrician or pick an occupation. A woman and her economic contribution was usually multifaceted, right? And so she might say, I am a homemaker and I also help in my family business. And when we have extra food from the farm, I take it to the market to sell. But because there's so much simultaneity in a woman's life, that was complicated to capture in labor statistics. And so it just was going uncounted. Can you give us some examples of how people can ask better survey questions that get to the heart of gender? One of the ways is ensuring that there is more diversity in the surveyors themselves. A second way is ensuring that 
especially with household surveys, that surveys are not only being asked of one person and that it's not only the interpretation of whoever is, is asking the question of who's the head, I'm using quotation marks, <laughs> who's the head of the household. That's also very important, right? Making sure that questions are not only being asked of men, but that they're being asked of women as well. I think another thing is making sure that the there, there are actually gendered differences in the ordering of questions. And so making sure that you're not starting your question with, what's your primary occupation in a country where, like I was talking about, you have women containing multitudes and simultaneous activities where she's going to feel that the first thing she needs to answer is, well, I'm a mother or I'm a homemaker. And then she just focuses on that and that you don't actually capture her economic activity, her other economic activities. I would argue, argue that caring for her for children is absolutely an economic activity in and of itself. But so I think that those are some examples of the kinds of things that could happen better in terms of the way that we collect our data in the first place. Before you go, Emily, what about gender data do you wish you had known before you started Data2x that you know now? I think at the beginning, we were really focused on trying to understand, right, what was the scope of the problem? Because that actually didn't exist in any one place of looking across every topic. And I wish I had been able to make that full leap to, I need to start right now of building what all of these policy examples could be and building that groundwork from the get-go. We have to be collecting what are those examples? Where does it actually turn into tangible change and policy change? Because it's only with having enough of those examples that you can track over time that that will really tip any of the doubters over the edge to say, yes, this actually can make an appreciable improvement from a policy standpoint. Emily Corey Pryor, Executive Director of Data2x. Emily, thank you. Thank you so much, Rena. It was really a pleasure. To back up Emily's thoughts there, let's just point out some of the big gender-related policy examples Emily and our first guest Leti Chawara highlighted here. Numbers that revealed hidden truths and are changing policies. Both found huge numbers of women experiencing sexual violence or perceiving sexual violence under certain circumstances to be okay. Leti saw that more than 60% of Ethiopian women could not read or write. All this information is influencing governments, the private sector, and civil society to create new ways to address these needs. She also mentioned a big stat that they found about agriculture in Ethiopia. More than 70% of women are involved in agriculture, but only 10% on the land that they found. Across Africa, agriculture is a huge part of many women's lives. So if women are going to be more empowered economically, addressing key needs in agriculture is critical. On the next episode, we're going to take a look at an innovative program in Nigeria. It's trying to ramp up the dairy sector there, resolve a climate-related conflict around cow herding that's actually killed more people in recent years than Boko Haram. If it works, it could be transformative. We could really displace imports and create an ecosystem that would not only generate jobs, address malnutrition, strengthen our local communities, address the security challenges in our country, and also empower women. More on that program called Aldine next week. 
And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy, and it's supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and give us a review. It really helps spread the word about what we're doing. Also, you can sign up to get a policy brief on gender equality. This is content that's normally behind a paywall at Foreign Policy, but we're offering special access to our podcast listeners. It's a great resource for understanding the big picture on what's happening globally to try and tackle gender inequality. Just visit go.foreignpolicy.com backslash recovery. That's go.foreignpolicy.com backslash recovery. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Ninen. Laura Rossbro-Tellum is our senior producer. Andrew Perella, our editor. Rob Sachs is our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, and Zamone Perez. Thank you, and we'll be back in your feed next week. <laughs>